Astonishing Legends is supported by ZipRecruiter, Squarespace, The Great Courses Plus, and Harrys.com. And we're back. Well, this one's been a long time coming. I think it's fair to say that The Mothman and The Count of St. Germain were the two guys I was most interested in when we were first concepting the show. We'll save The Count for another day, but tonight we tackle one of the most infamous legends in modern North America, The Mothman. Happy Halloween. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Human beings are under the control of a strange force that bends them in absurd ways, forcing them to play a role in a bizarre game of deception. Jacques Vallée, computer scientist, venture capitalist, and noted ufologist. Join us tonight as we dive into the astonishing legend of the Mothman. So this story is too big for a single episode. We're going to break it into a few parts. And oddly, it has a lot more in common with Skinwalker Ranch than I originally thought of when I read the book, Mothman Prophecies, a long time ago. I read it years and years ago before we started the show. I think you're going to find a lot of that happening as we go forward into our journey with us and the audience, Scott. Yeah, there's more common threads than I ever expected. When we started out, I did not see that coming. Yeah, this has always been a big one for us and uh, and a good one to do at Halloween. Yes, it's the perfect time of year for it. And it's not quite as everything in the kitchen sink as Skinwalker was, but there's some striking parallels. And I think you guys are going to hear them as well if you've been listening to all our shows. There's plenty of sync. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of sync. Not quite as wide-ranging as Skinwalker, but you're right. As now we're fond of saying here, a confluence yes. of phenomenon happening here. If you've gotten your information about this story from the movie, The Mothman Prophecies, which I love. It's a great movie. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I know we have listeners have already expressed differing opinions about it. Some people are upset that it doesn't convey everything that happened. But when you make a movie, that's what you have to do. Yes. And it did a great job of making it into a good bit of entertainment, but it also left a lot of the real story out, which is, as I just said, yeah, what you, the, you what can't do everything. Do. You no. can't put everything in a, in a movie. Yeah, exactly. The reality of everything that happened in Point Pleasant is that it doesn't all follow a suitable entertainment narrative. So like a lot of folklore, the bits that don't fit into the structure get left out when the tale is told over and over in that environment. But what we do here at Astonishing Legends is we try to bring all the details back into the light because that's the reality of the legend. And the beauty of the podcast format is that it's well-suited for that. Now, if you've seen the movie, which came out in 2002 with Richard Gere, that's great. Forrest and I have both seen it several times. But if you haven't and you'd prefer to hear the real story first, we would encourage you not to watch the film until our series is completed. It'll be a lot more fun that way, and you'll know the true story that was the background for the film adaptation. And like I said, I read the book a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember when, but it originally was published in 1975, which I didn't know. I thought it came out much later. Oh, it was yeah. The second or third edition that came out later. I just procured, which I Instagrammed and tweeted yesterday. I don't even know if you saw it yet for us, but I got I did. hardcover yeah. 1975 editions on its way. No, it's very cool. And the author, the great John Keel, yes. a big name in this field, along with Brad Steiger, and actually they're, they're longtime friends. They've been doing it a long time. So at this time, he was an advanced age. Yes. But during this time, he was in his prime here, out uh, digging up the facts. Yes, when the story uh, happened in the late 60s, he was a younger man. Astonishing Legends, as it is now, doesn't really afford us 
much to our disdain. <laughs> well, we'd love to. The, the ability to travel to all the places we talk about. That is something that we'd love to do. And if, if the show continues to be successful and grow like it's been growing, maybe someday we'll be able to actually go to these places and and report on them locally. Something I would love to do. So go legend trip. I think you did go there to the well. well to one of the locations we'll be talking about, didn't you? Yeah, that's yeah. why I brought this up. I'm excited to say that I've been to Point Pleasant. I yeah. stayed in Point Pleasant, and uh, and it I was pleasant. It was. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I loved it. It's a great little town. I mean, I was born here near Death Valley in California, but I only lived there till I was about two. My experience of growing up was in North Carolina, and small towns were part of the fabric of my background. Yeah. And I love small towns, especially in the South. You're essentially Opie from Mayberry. Yes, <laughs> that's me. Yeah. Well, now you'd be a very successful film director. In yes. That case. Yeah. Yeah. My hairline's not quite as bad. <laughs> no, but I I know exactly what you're saying. It's that kind of suburban slash somewhat rural upbringing. And it's much different than somebody growing up in a major city. You have a lot more freedoms, a lot more time yeah. to check things out, the environment around you. I loved it. And I loved Point Pleasant. I went there, um, my friend Jerry, who you may, actually our audience will know because he's the one I interviewed for What's Gotten Into You, which is one of the favorite episodes of people about It's the, a creepy crawly one. Yeah, yeah. the bug that went in his ear. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Jerry was moving from uh, California to New York, where my wife and I had just moved a year earlier. So I flew across the country, and we drove back together. I rode with him, so we did one of those kind of nonstop trips. We had packed up a U-Haul van and put a mattress in a way where there was like just a gap where someone could lay down so that yeah. we could drive and sleep and drive and sleep without having to stop. We covered the distance pretty quick, but we did stop in Point Pleasant, and we stayed there at the historic Low Hotel. It's in the movie. Uh, yes, is it? it is. Yeah. And yeah. it's an awesome, creepy old hotel, which yeah. we just added a member to the Astonishing Research Corps who was a resident of Point Pleasant. His name is Michael Heinemann. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he told me that either his grandparents or his great-grandparents actually used to own that hotel. Oh. Uh, but it was sold to a friend of the family. That was fascinating to me. But anyway, we stayed there. It was definitely a spooky place. I don't know if it's supposed to be haunted. I didn't experience anything like that. But we, we went around and checked out the area and went down on the river shore. There's a flood wall there, an old flood wall that's kind of cool, that they had a door they could close up if the river came up because it's pretty close down to the waterline. Did you see anything strange in the skies? No, okay. we didn't. And these days it's pretty quiet. We'll yeah. talk more about that. I don't think there's a lot going on. Or if there is, they're not talking about it. <laughs> they weren't talking about it then either. But what makes... This story, significant, is that we always try to impress on people that, yes, we're telling you a lot of these things that happened, and there's always a general sense to believe that, well, this place is a hotbed of activity. And that might be true, but these things are also very, very rare. Yes. In an individual's life, is something strange that you might see or an encounter that you can't explain might happen once or twice in your life. Right. And events are spread out. You get the sense when you hear the stories later that they're all compressed, much yeah. like it was with Skinwalker or whatever. But the truth is, these things take place over a long period of time. Now, in this case... Yes, on the other hand... In this case, everything that happened happened in about 13 months. Right. The bulk of it, although there are loosely connected events bookending it that go further back with, oh, I saw this, I saw that. But the bulk of what most people attribute to as to being related to what has made this story famous took place over yeah. a period of about 13 months. But I think the number of incidents and accounts and witnesses over involved, 100, over witnesses. 100 yeah. documented witnesses and accounts, yeah. that alone makes it very significant. Indeed. Which is why so many people pay attention to this story and have come to love it. And as big as the story is here in North America, especially after the movie, which starred Richard Keir and Laura Linney, we know we have international listeners and folks who aren't familiar with it. So before we dive in too deeply, we wanted to give a brief overview of the story. In November of 1966, 
people living in the small town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which we were just talking about, and its neighboring communities along the mighty Ohio River began to see something extremely strange haunting the area. There were so many eyewitnesses that it's hard to say what the first official sighting was, but one of the ones most often referred to as kind of a starting point was a sighting by a National Guardsman on duty at the Point Pleasant 1092nd Engineer Battalion Headquarters. He was on the base when he saw an impossibly large creature perched high in a tree above a fence bordering the base. It was so big, he thought it was a man, and he stood and he stared at it for quite some time. He couldn't make sense of it. So he's like, it must be a bird, but it's too big. It was the largest bird he'd ever seen in his life. He went to get someone else to come back and take a look at it, and when he returned, it was gone. So... This event on its own, (laughs) you probably wouldn't even tell this as a story. You would chalk it up to a misinterpretation and whatever. This guy himself didn't come forward with it until he started to hear more stories. Yeah, at this point, it's not enough for yourself and probably for other people to hear. So I Yeah, you just feel like, I saw it, but my mind must have been playing tricks on me, whatever. Well, I know tons of stories like that, and I have several friends that that happened to where it's kind of, first of all, well, that's weird. Yeah. And then later on... Okay, that's beyond weird. You can really easily convince yourself in a one-off kind of instance like that that you were mistaken. Right. Especially in this day and age. It's kind of like, it's so funny. My wife and we're watching TV. We watch a lot of crime shows. And whenever they come on and somebody explains luminol and what luminol does, (laughs) it's like we're at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's like, we know what luminol does. (laughs) It's just, that's the same thing I would say about how people understand the value of eyewitness testimony, even if it's your own eyewitness account In this day and age, everyone knows that it's not always the most reliable thing. So you have to take any kind of eyewitness testimony with a grain of salt versus when you see something on video, it's like, no, that's what I'm seeing. However, the problem with video is that the moment, whatever you're seeing, is out of context. You have no idea what happened before or after it. So it has its own deficiencies. But the National Guardsman, he probably would have never come forward had more and more cases not been coming out. Right. It reminds me of another military-themed Sighting. And forgive me for talking off the cuff here, but I believe it was Napoleon's nephew or something, some kind of relation that saw the Jersey Devil flying near the post there with other people as well and took a shot at it. It turned in the air. I remember this part. It's flying. It's this weird crypto creature flying in the air. He shot at it. It kind of did a roll in the air, kept on flying and and went away. But he wasn't the only one. So other people saw it. This is not the only time that this apparently has happened, apparently throughout the ages. Yeah. Again, like the skinwalker, this might go back centuries or millennia. And when you talk about this and you talk about cryptozoology, which is firmly labeled a pseudoscience, frankly, by Wikipedia anyway. (laughs) Oh, well. I know. But I love cryptozoology, which is the study or the hunt for unknown animals. Which we're discovering all the time, by the way. That's right. The googly-eyed squid. Yeah. Nobody knew about him. His little cute purple face there. Right. So when you first see it, it's cryptozoological. (laughs) Eventually, if you can apply the scientific method to it and put it into a species and a genus and all that, and it's like, okay, now it's science, but whatever. The point is that People see things that they can't explain. And yes, sometimes the chupacabra, I think, probably is a dog with mange. <laughs> sure. <laughs> or whatever yeah. else. But there are other cases where people see things they can't explain. And that is the story with this giant human-sized bird that the National Guardsmen saw. However, this story takes a whole nother turn almost right out of the gate. Because the very next day after yeah. the National Guardsmen saw this thing in the tree... A traveling sewing machine salesman named Woodrow Woody Durenberger 
had an encounter with an extremely strange man outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia, which is just north of Point Pleasant along the Ohio River. This man was not a mothman at all, but he was humanoid, and he called himself Indrid Cold. His demeanor was extremely disturbing to Durnberger, to say the least. Although these two encounters are not necessarily the very first ones in this chain of bizarre events, they are as good a place to kick off the story of the Mothman as any. And so tonight, we're going to begin with Derenberger's encounter with Cold, a man who described himself, if he was a man, as a searcher. Hey, Scott, have you ever tried searching for the perfect job candidate? Absolutely. For every gig, there's only a handful of people that are right for it, but finding them can be a job in itself. I know exactly what you mean. In fact, with my current project, I had to call and email nearly 100 candidates trying to find people with the right qualifications and experience. Well, that was before we got hooked up with ZipRecruiter.com. Instead of calling 100 people, I could have posted to 100-plus job sites with just a single click including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter. It's also a great solution if you're looking for a job. You can easily post your resume on ZipRecruiter.com and get a notification anytime someone checks you out. As an employer, you can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch qualified candidates' resumes stream into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard interface. The other problem with the old way is that you're then having to deal with a flood of inquiries. ZipRecruiter lets you quickly screen and organize job seekers to find the right person for the job and fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. And now back to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about Woodrow Durenberger. I thought it was yeah. Durenberger, but I did hear, I think in the interview that we're going to have some excerpts from tonight, yeah. I heard it pronounced Durenberger. It's spelled like it's Durenberger. It so. is spelled Durenberger, but I think okay. it's Durenberger. Either way, we're going to call him Woody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that's per- appropriate. So this story takes place on November 2nd. Outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia, where Woody Durenberger, who was a resident of Mineral Wells, West Virginia, which is about 55 miles northeast of Point Pleasant, he's a traveling salesman. He sold sewing machines. Yeah, he had a service van that he drove full of uh, uh, machines, not only to sell, but to support his sales. Exactly. And he was coming back from Marietta, Ohio, right? Yes. Driving south on I-77, just outside Parkersburg, West Virginia, where 77 and Route 47, also known today anyway as Staunton Avenue, intersect. And this was in 1966. I want to point out something that Keel said in his book. We're going to be referring to John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, a lot during this series. And one of the things that he said was that the interchange there, and I think I-77, was relatively new at the time. Mm -hmm. And he even made some implications about it being an intersection for quite some time. And he sort of delved into a few references about ley lines, which people have mixed feelings about. Oh, sure. Yeah. That comes up again when we get down to the name of the character that Woody ran into, and I'll get back to that here in a second. But right now, whenever we do one of these shows, yeah. when something happens somewhere, I'm immediately on Google Earth. I've gone oh, down sure. to, like, Street View, and I'm looking, yeah. and I'm just like, I'm there. Well, it's like what uh, I love, since we can't afford to actually go. <laughs> we can't afford, but you know, where that really came in handy was the Summerton Man. You can see the intersection there. Yeah. And, of course, it's all changed. There's an apartment building there. But when there's a definite 
location of something happening, especially an intersection or a crossroads that's still there. Well, you can find it. Yeah. And I did the same thing. So I know that Marietta, Ohio, you have to realize it's kind of on the border. He's only about 13 miles away from Parkersburg. Right. But he's heading home. He's had a full day of work. He's yes. coming back. Anyway, this is right next to a, another river, the Little Kanawha River. Is it Kanawha? Well, I don't know. I did that YouTube thing where the lady said it, and I think it was I don't trust her. She's a robot. Yeah, you're right. You can't trust (laughs) robots. They're taking our jobs. (laughs) And your your medicine. Anyway, the little river that we said a second ago, which is a tributary of the Ohio. Anyway, so Woody's driving down the road in his panel van, his sewing machine panel van, and a car passes him, goes flying by him as he's heading south towards Route 47. And this car is being trailed by a low-flying... Very closely. Yes. UFO is about 30 feet behind it, and the UFO itself is 35 feet long and maybe 9 feet wide, and it's floating and chasing this car that went by it. So first of all, I'd like to know where that person is. Well, I've often thought about this. Were they in some kind of cahoots? Yeah. Because it was the opposite of what you see in Close Encounters where the cop cars are chasing the ice cream cone there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a similar idea. The car zips past. And I can't remember from the interview if he described it as a black sedan because then I started thinking. Did he? Yeah. I'm not I sure. I can't remember that either. Uh, By the way, the interview we're going to be playing excerpts from, we have a link to in the show notes. You can listen to it in its entirety, the audio. It was a television interview. Yeah. And it's audio only. And it's about 30 minutes. And it's fascinating. It's fun and interesting to listen to. So Yes. And it's always been my just internal interpretation here that somehow those two vehicles were connected. As Woody describes it, it's much like a chimney on an old-fashioned kerosene lamp. Right. The description of the craft. Right. And so it's kind of a weirdly shaped tube with flares at the end bulging in the middle. Yeah. It's kind of end-to-end. So it's lengthwise going down the highway, chasing or following in tandem this car that zips past Woody. Right. Now, what happens once it gets past him? As soon as it gets past him, it goes up in the road in front of him, and it turns sideways and settles down low enough, and it does not touch the ground, but low enough that there's no way he can go around it. In fact, he tried to go around it. He had pulled off into the grass a little bit, but there was just no way. And he also indicated that it did not come to an abrupt stop. He didn't have to lock up his brakes or anything. No, no. But it it actually sort of slowed gradually to give him an opportunity to slow down. It meant to kind of get in front of him, slow him down safely, gently, to a stop because it had some business with Woody. I started thinking about the shape. You'll see pictures, of course, an artist depiction and and a rendering. Uh, And Chad's working on something, too, which by the time the show goes up, you will see. So you will have already seen it. For you that have not checked it out, that are listening to the audio first, it kind of reminds me, you ever seen those foot roller massagers that are usually wood and there's knobby kind of things and you you put them on the floor and I think you can roll the sole of your foot over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or kind of a, a more fatter looking dumbbell. Right. A small hand weight. Yeah. Uh, very light. So that's kind of what you have to picture here, and that's what Woody's talking about. Like, what he means by the chimney on a kerosene lantern is that you have the bulbous shape of the lantern, and then, of course, the smoke uh, has to get out the top somehow. So there's kind of a tubular attachment to the top that's on a spring, and it kind of flares out at the end. So imagine two of those on the opposite ends of this bulging kind of a tube. Yeah. That's kind of what he's describing here. Yeah. I feel bad about this tangent, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. It looks a little bit like a kelp bulb. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know why yeah. that popped into my head. Right no, now, it's, it's, like, I think it's important. If you've uh, ever had yeah. kelp wrap itself around your leg on the when Pacific you're swimming, coast yeah. when you're swimming, yeah. and talk about yeah. a, a frightening grab, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, those little bulbs, it kind of looks right. like that. It's anyway. just one of the many thousands of shapes described as unidentified flying objects. 
And this one's kind of important because it's a little odd. It's not your usual saucer shape or not even your standard cigar shape, right. which are some of the more common ones, and not even close to the black flying triangle yet. Right. It stops in the road in front of him, and a door opens. Now, I want to be clear about this. This door, I wanted it to be a Star Trek door, or I wanted <laughs> no. this to matter to appear, yeah. but apparently it had a good old-fashioned hinge on it, yeah. and it swung open, and a character, a gentleman, yeah. stepped out of it onto the ground. Now, I believe that Woody said it was floating... Six to eight inches above the ground. Six to eight inches yeah. above the ground, with no visible landing gear or anything like that. And just to paint the scene here, so this thing has turned on its side, yeah. covering... Blocking all, the whole road. The side of the road. He has pulled over so that... Two sets of wheels are on the dirt berm next to the highway. The other two are actually on the pavement. Yeah. His lights are on. His headlights are shining directly onto this craft. Yes. So he has a very good view. It's very well illuminated. It had been raining earlier. It had stopped at this point. It was just sprinkling. So the conditions were wet, but he can clearly see this thing. Right. So the door opens... Swings out. It swings so out. Laterally. I can't remember was the hinge on the bot. No, it was on the side, I think, like a car door. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, you can't now. see the hinge. It's not like poor workmanship. And you, yeah. <laughs> you can see but the hinge is there. He describes yeah. it as a very, aside from the fact that it's floating in air, he describes it's it sort of no, very terrestrial. The, yeah, no, in no. In terms no, of its just, door. It makes a sound like a car door, he, he described it. Yeah, and he said it sounded like a car door actually later when it closed as well. When it closed. Okay. And this, there's a thunk. This comes back to a whole thing, which is going to be an ongoing theme in this series of kind of an overly terrestrial nature to these seemingly non-terrestrial craft. Some of them, yes. Yeah. That's the one thing, though, Scott, that carries throughout all of ufology. There's every combination, varied description that you can imagine. No, it's like the famous woodcutting, right, with all the things in the sky that everyone said they oh, saw. Oh, that's, like, yes, you're talking about the battle over Nuremberg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a different thing. That's, it's got a lot of shapes, though. <laughs> well, I love those shapes. When I was a kid, I was like, yeah. wow. That was also documented. Tons of townsfolk had seen it. It was, I don't know, early in the morning, six, a little after 6 a.m., but the sun had already uh, started cresting. And so it wasn't just one person, but now you're talking about a medieval description of very strange happenings. Yes. This is not that. We have a very sober individual yes. who seems clear-minded and not crazy right. telling a very peculiar story. So this guy comes out of the crowd. He's walking towards the car. And he apparently is walking across Woody's headlights over to the side of the car that's safely on the side of the highway. The right side of the highway. And you wonder about this. Why is he coming up to the driver's side? Well, there's traffic. Exactly. He's following a standard police procedure here. <laughs> you, you don't approach on the side that puts you out in the middle of the road. You yeah. approach on the safe side, which is off the road. It's the other reason they park their cars at an angle, so that if another car hits it, it deflects it. glances. It. Yeah, right, it glances right. off. But anyway. It still doesn't keep people from uh, hitting them. But no, because people are stupid. Well, <laughs> there's a weird uh, psychological phenomenon that I think, especially people who are inebriated or intoxicated, just gradually drift. It's like a moth to the flame kind of thing that will burn them, but they drift over. They can't kind of help it. They're, yeah. they're attracted to it, and then they smash into the back of a Department of Transportation uh, works vehicle. Yeah. That's why they have those giant uh, scorpion tails on them for, for yeah. impacts. But this is all kind of planned. It's very smoothly done yes. by this individual, and his whole deployment is very smooth. Well, yeah, and here's the thing, though, that Woody talks about. As he's approaching the car, Woody hears him ask him to roll his window down on his passenger side of his truck. Yes, and this is fascinating. The interviewer specifically asked him at what point he got this question, and Woody said as he was walking towards the car. And what happened was Woody was hearing these messages from the guy who was getting out of the craft in his head. 
and which he didn't know at first. He, no, he wasn't aware of it. Yeah. He was still in shock about the whole event. He was frightened. He made it very clear that he was scared. He thought it was, of course, just a car, maybe a truck passing close out of the corner of his eye. Then he gets a good glance at this thing, and just imagine it. It's all happening kind of quickly. Thing turns on its side. That's weird. A guy steps out of this weird-shaped object. So after he got out of the craft, the door closes. The vehicle shoots straight up into the air. Now, Woody can still see it. He says he kind of leaned forward. He can see it at the top of his windshield. So it's right. still in the sky. Like 50 or 75 feet hovering. Right. But now passing cars are not going to see anything. And that's another interesting thing. Cars are now, and trucks, are passing as regular traffic on the highway. Not very crowded, but every once in a while. And as they pass, their headlights are on, and they illuminate this individual. Yes. So... To Woody's mind, like, this thing's real. He's a real guy. He looks totally normal. But, yes, he gets this request from this gentleman. To roll the window down. To roll, please roll your window down. I would like to speak with you. Right. He leans over. He rolls the window. And this is pre-power windows unless you had a Cadillac or a Continental. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yeah, so he's reaching over, hand-cranking that window. And the guy says, I would like to speak with you for a moment. And I think that is when Woody realizes that this guy's talking to me. But he's not moving his mouth. Right. Which then greatly excites him into kind of a mild panic as what is going on here? At which point the man says to him mentally, don't be frightened. We mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. Woody says the man then told him that his name was Cold. He did not say a first name. He just said Cold. In yeah. this encounter, he never said a first name, right. which is something I think a lot of people don't know. Yes. He just said his name was Cold. He had a giant grin. He was grinning. He had his arms folded. He was wearing, you can probably describe his wardrobe better yeah, than Yeah, and, and, and keep in mind, uh, Woody Woodrow Derenberger here is describing this incident to Ronald Maines, who's the general manager of WTAP TV and radio out of Parkersburg. Which is still there. Which is still there yeah. as a station. And this is the next day. So this is very, very fresh in his mind. He's very straightforward. He's not shaky. He's not flamboyant in his descriptions. He's very dead on. You all have a relative, I'm sure, like he's that. He's stoic. Very, yeah, say. he was stoic, yeah. but, but friendly and open. And it is kind of brave of him to be telling this. Yeah, because you're going to get ridiculed. Oh, of course. Hands yeah. down. No, There's no kn- way you can not that. know that. Yeah. It's a small town, one of those places that everybody knows everyone else, and he knows that. But I think it was so compelling that he had to tell it. So he contacted somebody. So the next day, November 3rd, they arrange an interview. So Mr. Derenberger alleges that the contact happened November 2nd, 1966, at about 7.25 p.m., these details are very fresh in his mind, but he describes this gentleman named Cold. He didn't ask Woody his name. He did it in a very odd way. He said, what are you called? What are you called? <laughs> so right. Woody interpreted this like, oh, you mean what's my name? So he said, well, it's Woodrow Durenberger. And he said, I am called Cold. So that was a little odd. So as this is unfolding, he's kind of piecing us together. And he's looking at the man and noticing what he's dressed. And it's very, pretty normal. He said, like what you would wear going into town. He's wearing a dark top coat. Yeah, that's an overcoat. It's a weather coat to be worn over your suit. So right. normally you just wouldn't, uh, you know, <laughs> be bare-chested or just have a t-shirt on or anything like that. Yes. It's zippered in the front. He said there was kind of like two top buttons. Those were undone. So he can kind of see what's on underneath. And he said the top coat was very dark. Maybe, I believe, uh, Ronald Maines, the general manager there, asked him and said, like, well, it was kind of uh, dark navy blue. So imagine that's kind of the color, just a very dark, dark, very dark bluish color. 
Woody said it was glistening. It was shiny, almost metallic looking. And that as the cars drove by, it glistened and kind of shined in the headlights. So he said, yeah, very shiny material, very unusual for the time, what Woody's wife would call a heavy material or a a heavy fabric. And underneath, he said he had kind of a regular shirt, no tie, but the shirt was a little darker than the coat. And then he had regular trousers on, and those were a little lighter than the coat, but also kind of that same color, kind of a darkish bluish hue. But at least with the trousers, he said it looked to be made out of the same material, that kind of metallic looking. Very futuristic. Yeah. Every space suit you see in the 50s, they're wearing, usually it's a silver suit of some kind. But earlier I thought it was kind of maybe a flight suit, but it wasn't. So just kind of normal clothes, but Yeah, no odd. tubes on this one. No, no. no tubes, no bubble helmets. Yeah. No breathing apparatus. He looks pretty normal, as Woody described him. Thick head of hair, dark, dark brown, slick back, kind of, but a little longish. And he said he had a deep tan, nothing unusual, not like a spray can formulation, but that maybe he'd been outdoors and, uh, you know, working or something, and he looked like he was just heavily tanned. That's kind of the physical description. Maybe it was Trump. Yeah. (laughs) I think he would have said orange. Right, right. If that were the case, and maybe some kind of a dead squirrel on his head. Right. It's nothing visually that that's too upsetting, other than he came out of a big metal tube, which was, he described it as charcoal colored. Yes. Maybe kind of dull, not real shiny, I don't think. But yeah, kind of a dark gray, very charcoal as he described it. So other than that, the guy looks pretty normal. He, and he said that he's, his persona was very friendly, like he was very trying to be calm. But again, to an average human, anything like that happening in that appearance, that normally doesn't happen. So you're was, already yeah, he was trying to scared. Keep, Woody got the impression he was trying to keep him calm as well and yeah. put him at ease. And twice, Woody said, he twice cold asked him, you can either communicate with me by thinking, or you can just talk to me. Yeah. Whatever is more comfortable for you. <laughs> Whatever Woody's works thing, for you. Of course, Woody's not used to mental telepathy with strangers yeah. or kind of a, a strange clairvoyance. So that alone is upsetting. Well, but the guy doesn't the, know. He's just like, oh, I'm, I'm giving you the choice. You well, and that brings me to one of my favorite things that Woody said in the interview. He said that Cole then asked him what the city was and the distance because they were right outside of Parkersburg. He says he indicated this by pointing. Well, actually, here, let's just play Woody's answer. I told him my name, and when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. That was the name that he was called by. And he asked me what the city of Parkinsburg, he pointed to the lights. He didn't point, but he gave the impression that he was pointing, and he asked me what that was called. And I told him it was a Parkinsburg, it was a city, a town. And he asked me if most all the people lived in my, this city or town. And I explained to him uh, that it was a place of business. It's where we transacted our business. That the people lived in communities, outlying communities, most of the people. And when I told him that this was a city, he said that his, where his home was, that that was called a gathering. Right. Okay. So my favorite part of that is when Woody says, he didn't point, he gave the impression he was pointing. I love that. He gave the impression he was pointing. So all of his communication is coming through into his mind, 
he gave the impression he was pointing. Well, there's Even some, though he's standing you know, there with his hands yeah. under his armpits. Right. He's standing there with his hands under his armpits. I think, not that he had weird reptilian claw hands or, yeah. do- or dog, skinwalker no, well, dog hands. And but no, I, actually, yeah. Woody said that later when he went back to the craft, an yeah. arm reached out and helped pull him into the craft. Yeah, and closed he saw the door. that yeah. arm and that hand, and he said it looked completely human. Yeah, they're completely normal. And the I, door closed with a car door kind of thud. <laughs> a yeah. car door. Yeah. So we got yeah. a flying lantern chimney yeah. that has car door sounds. Yeah. I'm just But a anyway. solid American car door. What's right. interesting here is that you could tell by the body language, I think, with the hands under the armpits as non-aggressive. Yeah. Have you seen people do that, especially when their hands are cold? They got their basically their their hands tucked under their armpits. So arms folded, and it's kind but, of like I'm real casual. I'm not uh, trying to reach out to you, and then kind of but a strangling. It, it lends itself though to the whole idea that these visitors, and there's going to be more of them in this story, yeah. don't exactly know how to look natural, well, or yeah. how to behave normally. <laughs> their body yeah. language is a little weird. Yeah, their voices are often described as sort of sing-songy and kind of unusual. Right. And this is a way of standing that, yes, you're capable of standing like that with your hands in your armpits. Yeah. And some people, I think, genetically are predisposed to maybe do that their whole lives, but it's not a majority of people. I think when most people stand with their arms folded, they stand with them folded in front of them, not necessarily tucking their palms up into their pits. <laughs> so well, some people do yeah. that, but well, not Car- many. Yeah, Mary Catherine from uh, Oh, Mary Catherine yeah. Gallagher, yes. yes. But Molly, that's only the so great she Molly she Shannon. sniff her armpits yes. with her fingers. <laughs> No, I, th- I think in this the, again the, the gesture, <laughs> the gesture that he's doing, he's trying not to scare this guy. I'm sure he's an intelligent creature. Maybe he realized like, well, there's not much I can do. I just came down from a, a big metal tube. He's going to be scared, and I'm communicating with him through my mind. But he's trying to be as nice as possible. But he does have some questions for Woody. Listen to this. He told me not to be frightened, which I was. I was, I was very frightened. And as far as I can understand, this was all mental. There was no spoken words from him. I knew what he was asking me, but yet he stood there and his mouth did not move. He had a smile on his face. He was he appeared very courteous and friendly. So as the interview goes on, the journalist continues to ask him, did you ever believe in Flying Saucers prior to this incident. And he says, what would you think of a story like that if someone told it to you? I believe now that that could happen. If someone would have told me yesterday before this happened, I would have frankly thought he was a nut. But I honestly believe now that it could happen. I wouldn't, I'm I'm surely not going to say it couldn't happen. Uh, now, these men last night, or this man, he made, uh, gave me no indication that he wanted me on his ship. He didn't ask me to get out of my truck. As I say, he was very friendly and courteous. Right, so there's all of that. First of all, I love that he would say he was a nut. I love the expression, <laughs> nut. In our family, yeah. you joked about me being Opie, but... <laughs> One of my favorite things about the Andy yeah. Griffith show was yeah. when they would call Barney a nut or sure. Barney and Andy would call Ernest T. Bass, which no one's going to know who yeah. that is, a Goober. nut. No, Ernest T. was the crazy guy that came out of the mountains That's and threw right. rocks at everything. And That's right. There goes a happy man. There goes a happy nut. You know, obviously, in the late 60s, people were calling each other nuts. Yeah. Not politically correct anymore. 
Is so it? please don't send any emails <laughs> if you. Uh... No, that's the that's the Peter Sellers from the. Uh, <laughs> he's like that guy is crazy, and he's like, we don't say that now. He says, well, what do you call them? He says, now, now. It's like, well, he's a little now, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little. Well, anyways, but no. The, here's what's uh, <laughs> an interesting aspect of this. If you don't believe any of this, you think like, well, he's just got an angle here. Maybe he's going to write a book later. Who knows? So far, none of this Mothman business has happened yet. Yeah. Okay. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Secondly, it's a pretty darn good piece of science fiction, and what I mean by that is his details are creative. They're not the old hackneyed, you know, round saucer came out, a guy with three eyes and green skin and antenna. What I'm talking about is My Favorite Martian, yeah. which is around the same time. Yeah. You've got to have antenna poking out of your head. It's none of those cliched aspects. And again, not that somebody with a story like that, because we've certainly heard some that did have a few of those cliched elements, which were kind of fantastical. But here you have a pretty unique story with a unique being and an encounter that if he is making this all up, it's pretty well done, I'd say. You yeah. know, like because it's varied enough, it's unusual, it's unique. That doesn't validate his story. I'm just saying that, again, if you want to take the tack that you don't believe it, I would give him credit, though, for the uniqueness of this. Yeah, there was a lot of interesting things about it. The journalist went on to ask him what kind of noise the craft made. Yeah. And he said it's kind of like a helicopter, but much, much quieter, hovering. A fluttering sound. A fluttering sound, which he actually does an imitation he does of. It, yeah. And he said that Cold was six feet tall, yeah, 180 to 185 pounds. Oh, this is what I love. Is that 30 that, to 35 years old, apparently. Yeah. 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 Well, well, Ronald Maines kind of tests him. He's very generous in the interview. Yeah. But he kind of tests him here a little bit. He said, well, uh, I'll stand up here. How tall do you think I am? How much do you think I weigh? Yeah. And he nailed it. He said, like, I don't know, 155, 160. Yeah. He's like, you're right on the dot. Yeah. So just seeing if this guy's way off or whatever. But yeah, so he was saying that uh, Cold was about six feet, maybe a little under that. Yeah. 5'10 or so, and uh, about 100, I think 180 to 185 pounds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's a good judge of that. And And then he said the other, you talk about Maine's testing him. He goes, yeah. so if he's talking to you telepathically, why'd you have to roll the window down? <laughs> well, that was, <laughs> but, yeah. But Darren Berger said it wasn't raining at this time. But it had been raining, yeah. and there was a lot of water on the windshield. And, and it's rain-streaked. Yeah. The wind, a, the, the, uh, well, but easier for us to see each other. Right, because he's like, well, did he have to do it to hear you? He's like, well, no, he can obviously hear my thoughts. Yeah. He did it to get a clear view of him. I looked up the weather that night. I mean, it's oh, obviously yeah. easy yeah. for Woody to remember because sure. he's talking the very next morning. Right. There was uh, just over three-quarters of an inch of precipitation in yeah. Parkersburg that night. That's kind of cool that you can find that out these days. Some places you can look up historical weather. In right, way. right. So that's kind of the setup here. He rolls down the window, and, and the questions are also interesting. Yeah. Because it's not, take me to your leader. He just wants to know some basic information about, uh, what's the, what are the lights over there? Is, yeah, like, is, that, that? A, is that where people live? What's going on? Again, he's not lost from out of town. Yeah. And he's looking for the nearest Howard Johnson's, well, and the that's Hojo's. A, that's going to be an ongoing theme, again, with some of these visitations that come up during the course of the Mothman story is the people who are arriving and clearly have a more advanced state of technology of some kind, or at least appear to, they give the impression that they yeah. do, but they are often seem disoriented with regard to where they are and what time it is. The time aspect especially is yeah, interesting. Very. So he asked him, is that, how do you support yourself? How do you nourish yourself? He's like, well, I have a job. I have to, he's like, do you have to work for a living? Like, yes. Yeah. And he then asks Cold, or Cold gives that up. He said it was not clammed up. He was giving him information. 
Another thing is that had Woody not been so freaked out and scared at the moment, he said that he felt he would have answered more questions had he had the, the wherewithal to ask them. Yeah. But he was just like basically overwhelmed by the situation and didn't really ask him too much. Yeah, he said he had a lot more questions now that it was over, <laughs> which is how sure. anything is. It's usually what happens. Well, like it's hindsight, sure. Yeah, if I get into an altercation with somebody, all the things I want to say don't occur to me till <laughs> the next day. That's the wit under the staircase. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He was asking basically like, well, what happens there? Do you have to work for a living? And here's another interesting aspect, but again, which would be good science fiction writing, I believe. Cold then says, well, uh, I'm a searcher. I told him that I was a salesman. And he told me that he was a searcher. A searcher? A searcher. But he didn't tell you what he was searching for? No, he didn't. Yeah, I'm a searcher. So what is he searching for? It's a good question. What's gone lost or missing, or what does he have to corral? The other thing that's really interesting is the last thing, the sign-off, the last thing that Cold said to Woody, and these sign-offs are going to come up again with other encounters. The one that the movie made famous was, I'll see you in time, Yeah, uh, which is not what Cold said. That's what another character said in another encounter, Vadik, uh, yeah. which we'll get down to that. He is the one that said, I'll see you in time. Cold said this, according to Woody. When he was getting ready to leave, he stepped back from the truck about one step, and he said... Uh, Mr. Durnberger, we will see you again. He didn't say I, he said we will see you again. This whole story, Keel himself said he probably would have dismissed it. He has had no shortage of encounters with people who are fond of UFOs and visiting yeah. and that tend to have a tendency to make things up or well, want things to be true. Yeah, they want a little interaction and they don't care how fantastical it sounds. People who want, also want attention from bad things they do. They don't care where it comes from. They just want some kind of interaction, connection, and attention. We've certainly seen plenty of that with our yeah. emails. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people contacting us. But the point yeah. is, Woody wasn't the only man who encountered somebody like this on that night. Oh, no. Before we get on to the other accounts, though, did you happen to see if Indered Cold is online? Well, yeah, well, he's got a, a website. Well, actually, he's just parked on a domain name right now. Oh, we can't figure out where to put it. You know what I bet he's doing? I bet he's looking for a great place where he can design it himself super easy. Well, if he wants to do it himself, he should use Squarespace. Because if you're doing any kind of creative project, like creating a family album or promoting your side business, or even organizing roadside interviews for your interdimensional travel blog, you need a website. And Squarespace is the easiest all-in-one way to create your own fabulous website in days instead of weeks. With Squarespace, you can express yourself or promote your business with a stylish, professional-looking website that works for you right away. That's because the idea behind Squarespace is that you don't need to know all that stuff to have your own awesome website. They've done all the difficult coding and programming for you. All you have to do is choose from a collection of beautiful templates for your look, created by top-shelf designers, and then choose what you want your site to do. It's that easy. We're revamping our own website, and with just a few clicks, I was able to preview and compare several cool-looking theme choices so we can get an idea of what it'll look like. And Squarespace can handle all of our e-commerce stuff, right? Absolutely. Squarespace can do all of that. Another thing we don't have to worry about are all the updates, upgrades, patches, fixes, and all the other stuff that the alternatives expect you to fix. Also, themes don't become obsolete and discontinued. Squarespace has your back. With their award-winning 24-7 customer support. So check them out at squarespace.com. 
Register a domain name of your own and start your free website or online store trial now. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code LEGENDS to save 10%. Squarespace. Make it beautiful. You're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. So as I said a few minutes ago before the break, this story might have been dismissed. Woody's story is pretty fantastical. There's a lot of things about it that don't make sense. If you have like a framework of how things might work with UFOs and the laws of physics, and his story is very unusual. It's unusual. It doesn't make sense. And so therefore, it's got to be false. Or it's so unusual that it doesn't make sense in a cliched way. It seems more real. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it certainly would seem more real if Woody's story wasn't the only one describing this type of encounter. So I'm going to read a short section from John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies. This is regarding an incident that took place on November 2nd, 1966, the exact same night that Woody encountered Cold. The way the story came to Keel is that an elderly man went to visit a reporter who became a very good friend of Keel's and was someone that he worked with frequently and visited with whenever he was in the area researching the Mothman and the other goings-on, as my grandmother used to say, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Her name was Mary Heyer, and she was the star reporter for The Messenger, Mary had an elderly man come into her office and say, I've just got to tell somebody this story. And I'm going to read it right here. He said this, and this is coming straight out of Kiel's book. The story he unfolded seemed totally unbelievable to Mrs. Heyer, who knew nothing of UFOs at the time. But she knew the man and was impressed by his sincerity. And by the way, I want to point out that Mrs. Heyer was very well respected by all the locals in the area as an upstanding journalist and someone you could trust. Yeah, from the Athens, Ohio messenger. There we go, Athens. Thank you. Mm -hmm. On November 2nd, 1966, he said, he and another workman were driving home to Point Pleasant from their job near Marietta, Ohio, on Interstate 77. As they neared Parkersburg, West Virginia, an elongated object appeared low in the sky and descended directly in front of them. They stopped their car, and a man emerged from the object and walked over to them. He looked like a normal man and was grinning broadly. He wore a black coat and kept his arms folded with his hands out of sight, under his armpits. Just to interject, that's exactly what Woody described. The witness rolled his window down, and there was a very brief conversation. The stranger asked the pair, Who are you? Where are you from? Where are you going? What time is it? Then he strolled back to the dark cylinder, and it rose quickly into the chill, drizzling sky again drizzling that night. They debated whether they should tell anybody, deciding against it. But the Point Pleasant resident found himself suffering from insomnia, and when he finally slept, he had strange nightmares. He started to hit the bottle, something very unusual for him. Mrs. Heyer listened to his story, nonplussed, and made a few notes. A day or so later, the man's son called on her and asked her not to print the story. Several weeks later, she repeated the story to me, this is to John Keel, and we called the man on her office phone. He verified the details and then said, quote, Look, don't use my name. I don't want to get involved in this thing. That scientist fella told me. What scientist, I asked. A couple of weeks after this thing happened, a scientist from Ohio came to see us. He told us it would be better if we forgot the whole thing. How did he hear about it? How did he find you? Damned if I know. Did he identify himself? Sure, but I can't remember his name. But he seemed to know what he was talking about. I couldn't get much else out of him. That's the end of that story. 
But the main thing here is that this guy who doesn't know Woody actually yeah. came in and told Mary Hire yeah. this story. And she actually didn't even think that much about it because it was so kind of crazy. Right. And she didn't realize what was about to unfold over the next year. Unconnected. Yeah. Unconnected to Woody. Yeah. And the description's the same. The craft, the body language, the interaction. And again, the thing that comes up a lot, which we had already made an allusion to earlier in this episode, don't seem to know what time it is. <laughs> right. Where, where am I? Yeah. They just don't know exactly where they are. And they don't really get our living arrangements Certain things, small things, seem to, they're amazed and befuddled by them, maybe. Well, it seems like wherever they're coming, if you believe any of this at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have to prefer, we always prefer <laughs> so We used that. to say that, yeah. yeah. If you believe any of this at all. Yeah. It does seem like wherever these folks are coming from, they aren't able to gather a lot of information from here and take it back to where they are. Or they aren't able to get information from there to hear back and forth. There's no connection. You bring up an interesting point, Scott, in that the things that our science currently, contemporary science and scientists, for those who want to play semantics with that, the model is that there are civilizations out there, and technically they are aliens, but maybe they're just like us, and they know about us because they've been receiving our radio and television transmissions since a little after the turn of the century. So say 1930s on, we've been beaming these signals out into space. So they know about I Love Lucy, Gilligan's Island, and... Those guys would have to be close because I Love Lucy only just passed Pluto in the last decade. Right. Or maybe those transmissions are getting sucked into a wormhole. I'm just saying, that's the yeah. opening of contact. Yeah. They know about us. They've been hearing about us. And again, that is another uh, SETI model. Somebody's been listening to us monitoring us. And Maybe they, that's what the Black about. Knight satellite does. Maybe it gathers the transmissions and then sends them through a wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they get better uh, download speeds than I do. Yeah. Or upload speeds. But that makes sense. We get that. We're beaming. Our radio signals are traveling at the speed of light. They're being beamed off the planet. If you're close by or have some way to pick that up, they can. Well, you would know about all of our culture, about jobs and our living yeah. groups yeah. known as cities a multitude of information about everybody all over the planet. So if they're not able to get that, where are they coming from where they can't? Where maybe the vibration and the frequency is just off enough that it makes it difficult for them. They're able to transverse the planes, but there's some things, like you said, they only can get once they get here physically like, Wow, are my clothes out of date? Or, <laughs> right. geez, I shouldn't have worn the shiny jacket. No, uh, last time guy, I was there, they were driving <laughs> Cadillacs from the 60s. Right. Yeah, that guy's wearing tweed. I've got uh, something from the future. So it, it's interesting you mentioned that. The other thing that's interesting is that it includes what's called a man in black encounter. Yeah. Always coming afterwards to warn you not to tell anybody. It would be best if you dropped and forgot this. And this gentleman just thought he was from the university. Yeah. But obviously he's used to weird <laughs> – maybe his impression is that strange people from the university uh, – he himself may have appeared strange to people who are not used to that from these rural areas. Just in his appearance, dark suit, shoes that were impractical for the area, facial hair at the time of the mid-60s, unless you were a college professor, beatnik, or musician, <laughs> or yeah. artist, was not real common. People were clean-shaven at that point. Now it's everybody's got three-day growth. So things change. So your appearance may seem odd. But again, in his description, I think first, one of the first people to introduce that 
was the author Gray Barker. Some of these are big concepts that have survived to ufology today and remain as their own concepts to this day. All right, so that's kind of the framework. We've gone over the framework of the setup of the beginning of the story. The Indrid Cold Encounter with Woody Dernberger is a important part of the story. It's something that everyone talks about. And again, it would be just kind of another crazy UFO story if it weren't for the fact that we had these other gentlemen coming into Mary Heyer's office and saying they encountered pretty much the exact same dude on the same night. It's a separate phenomenological... Whoa, phenomenological. You just make up a word. When I'm going <laughs> <when> to... <laughs> I'm not even going to go back to that. I have to do it, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, it's a separate account of something that could easily be taken as something completely unconnected and yeah. different. However, it has been, in hindsight, by many people who've studied this, definitely connected. Right. Because it's such a different thing. And that's where we say the confluence of different phenomenon happening here. As we discussed the timeline, that did occur first. So first, we have the National Guard sighting there. That, chronologically, is what we could find as the first occurrence, something in the area happening. Yes, yeah, something unusual. I mean, it's just one guy. He didn't hit, you know, when he went to get the other folks, nobody yeah. was there. But right. he saw something big in the tree that was human-sized, the largest bird he's ever seen in his life. Yeah. He didn't see it flying. He didn't see it land. He didn't see it take off. He just saw it sitting in the tree. In a lot of ways, that seems like one of the first more significant ones. There are other sightings, which yes. we will detail more in the other parts of this show, that have occurred earlier and later. Yeah. All over the world, and some also in the Ohio River Valley, but the descriptions are different. It's something, it was white, or it had a light on it, or it was, yeah. the, those things are, when it comes to this specific type of description, right. the National Guard sighting, in a lot of ways, seems like the first one, even though a lot of people say that the first one actually was November... November 12th. 12th, And, and the yeah. reason I make a point of this is because this is often, this happens a lot, folks, when you go to research something like this on your own, what you will find is that there's a bunch of articles that they might mention in an incident. And then if you kind of like, well, what's the source of that incident? And even if it's on uh, Wikipedia or a site that you really respect, they seem to all kind of point to one blurb, maybe, that in and of itself. And, and just quickly, yeah. while you're saying that, a lot of people make fun of Wikipedia, but I want to be clear that Wikipedia has been found to be more accurate than the Encyclopedia Britannica used to be. In fact, that was on an NPR. You can kind of search that. And here's where the wording is interesting, the semantics of it, is that Wikipedia is crowdsourced in a way, is that very smart people who are really into this, who either act, study the stuff academically or just have studied it on an amateur level on their own, but are really into it put these pages together. They're edited, but they're checked out. With Encyclopedia Britannica, there's on average five to six things that there might be errors or more likely they are points of contention. Mm -hmm. As we've said so many times in our shows, it's like you may have the top people in a field in academia disagreeing on a fact. So in Wikipedia, I believe it was found about three to four things per entry are debated. So less things on Wikipedia are debated than they are Right. In the Encyclopedia Britannica. But here we have one entry that was only first seen or only seen on the West Virginia Department of Commerce's website, wvcommerce.org, where they claim this is the first sighting of the Mothman. And it's November 12th, 1966. And it's a little story that goes on this date five men were digging a grave in a cemetery near. Clendenin, West Virginia, and they saw something that looked like a brown human being flying. So basically, this thing's sitting in the trees, lifts off from the trees, flies over to them, kind of flies low over their heads. 
And this is no bird. It looked like a brown human being that was flying. And so here we have the first sighting of the Mothman. As we right, know it flew it over them as they were digging the grave, right? Yeah, they're, for they're somebody's out, stepfather or something. Yeah, I don't know if that's related uh, or if there's any connection to it actually being a burial site. But basically, these are five men that reported seeing a large brown creature, what definitely not Wait, a bird. You don't know if what's related? I don't know if the brown flying man is related to the burial, like he was there observing oh, the burial. Right, right, you know right. what I'm saying? Like no, they, but that's what they were doing at That's the what time. they were doing, yes. yes. And so that's just totally unrelated. Yeah. Maybe nothing spooky about it. It wasn't visiting a relative or anything. So he yeah. just, this thing is in the trees. They've seen large birds before, and that's the closest thing you want to see people attribute this to. It's a large sandhill crane. It's a large owl. There is one thing about this particular sighting that bothers me. Yeah. It's very interesting. There's a couple of things about it. One is that the only place that we can find it on the internet is at the Chamber of Commerce website. Right. When you go to Google Maps and you look at Clendenin, Clendenin, right on the map, there is a mark that says, first sighting of Mothman. (laughs) Yeah. So someone's gone to the effort to put that there. So I have a couple of issues just with this particular claim. We can't find it corroborated anywhere. This story with the grave diggers, or the people digging the grave, does not appear in John Keel's book. It does not appear in Gray Barker's book, which predates Keel's. Yeah, you did check that. I searched the whole book. It's not in there. So it's not in either one of those two books. And those guys, between the two of them, they left no stone unturned when they covered this stuff. Barker's book actually came out before Keel's. Yeah, five years before, sure. Yeah, and like, Keel, 1970. some people see Barker as a little more fringy than Keel, and it's, there's a lot of, you That's know, funny. all well, kinds of things yeah. about it, but they knew each other, and there's some people that say that they were... Working together in collusion? Working together, or maybe yeah. frenemies, or I don't okay. know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But either way, that particular story is not reported in either one of them. So what I'm seeing here is that we have this particular story about the gravediggers that's being reported in this town that is not Point Pleasant. It's been dated as being the first one. It seems a little bit like a one-up story. <laughs> Like oh, the, the kind of by story the, by the town of Clendenin. Yeah, over I mean, Point I don't know. Pleasant. I don't know. It just I I want to know where it came from. Yeah, I want to yeah. know who the people were. Right. I want to see their written account or whoever it was when they told this story. Or is this just local oral legend? Okay, let me because uh, look, you know what yeah. it reminds me of. Yeah. It reminds me of the whole Billy the Kid controversy. And sooner or later, we're going to have to do Billy the Kid. But there's a couple of different towns that all say he lived there. And the reason they say that is because of the tourism dollars. It feels a little strange. And also, I want to say point blank. November 12th is not the first sighting. If you go with the National Guard sighting, yeah. that was November 1st. Part of it's definitely not accurate. Right. It's in the ballpark here. True. But as far as we can tell... It feels a lot like, hey, what can we do to get a little <laughs> few more of these tourism dollars that Point Pleasant is getting? Oh, well, that's interesting because, you know, they don't say that there's a... Uh, you, you know, basically on the one? <laughs> blurb, you're going to get a lot of angry letters from yeah. the... West Virginia Chamber of Commerce. However, I will say this. They don't claim to have their own Mothman Festival as Point Pleasant does. Well, you certainly couldn't do that. It's not like, hey, come to ours. It's better. Actually, we're the first one. We're more accurate and authentic. Well, there's 10 billion Bigfoot festivals. uh, Yeah, anybody can claim that. It's just all over the place. So nobody can really... You could say like the first sighting of Patty (laughs) in the woods, but nobody's going out there. Right. What I see happening here is that... I think it's perfectly valid or plausible that five men did report seeing a strange, large, brown flying man. (laughs) Yeah. That whether you believe that or not, or what they saw accurately or not, that may have happened. How far is Clendenin from Point Pleasant? 79 miles southwest of Point Pleasant. Clendenin is. Southwest. I I don't feel like the Mothman got down that way so much. I felt like he was going north, northeast, along the river, staying close to the river. Uh, Gallipolis? Gallipolis? How do you say Gallipolis, it? Gallipolis, I would say. Gallip- 
I should look that Gallipolis. Up. Gallipolis, Ohio. It's not Gallipolis. It's Gallipolis. Gallipolis. Yeah, Gallipolis. So these towns are all along the river. The bulk of the sightings of this particular breed, yes. for lack of a yeah. better word, of the Mothman occur there. So Maybe there's more than one, Scott. Maybe there is. Maybe there's several and brown it's, it's, flying men. You got to start somewhere with a legend. Yeah. And I think what the Chamber of Commerce is saying, like, this is it. I don't think there's any big rivalry between Clendenin and Point Pleasant. No, of course as not. As to who has, who's got the better museum. No. Who's got the there's bigger There's only festival. one museum. Exactly. By the way, That's there is saying. only one. So it's all the state of West Virginia. So I don't see any uh, collusion there, one-upsmanship with who's got uh, who's got the first sighting. Yeah, regardless, it's folklore, and it's probably silly to argue about it. Yeah, we're trying to be factual here. We are trying to be out, factual. Lay out the timeline, but I think they're not so much. Well, <laughs> you know yeah, more to the point, I said everything occurred right there along the river, but there were some sightings that were actually pretty far away from the area. On the night of November 15th, 1966, now we get going here. Yeah. Here's where the Things story start starts off. picking up a lot of speed. In fact, 100 miles an hour worth of speed. And this is 13 days after Woody's encounter with Indrid Cold. Pretty fresh. Yeah. Uh, these these events happening. Another point where we can say they may be somewhat connected. They may be. And also, I just want to say from the point of a hoax or an exaggeration or whatever, if you're trying to jump on the bandwagon of Woody's story, Woody's story is about a man and a UFO. Yes. This is completely unrelated to that in terms of the nature of the story. This is a more of a, but crypt, it's a cryptid story. Yeah, it's yeah. associated by time. The point that we had mentioned in earlier episodes, especially with Skinwalker leading up to that, is that now we're seeing this pattern very much in general. And, and so the whole paranormal community, I guess, sees it as well. A lot of these strange things happen in conjunction. Same time, same areas, same place. It used to be seemingly unrelated. What does a, a Bigfoot got to do with a UFO other than Chewbacca piloting the Millennium Falcon? You right. Know, like, what do these got to do with each other? Connections can be made, and a point we may have not said before, but people who, who study these things quite a bit will believe in one thing but not the other. Yes. So, like, I'm a UFO guy. Bigfoot is silly and stupid. Yeah. And people that research that are idiots. And people who say, ghosts? Oh, you bet. Bigfoot? No way. Right. UFOs? I don't know, maybe. You know, like, <laughs> so there's nobody that really takes all these into conjunction. And when you see reportage of the reportage of all this together, you may not see any, any, any kind of linked occurrences from the investigator. They may dismiss stuff like, well, I don't do orbs. Right. Like, but a hundred people saw this giant glowing orb. Yeah, that's not anything I have to do with. Yeah. However, these are connected events here that are very interesting because now, like I said, a lot of stuff, like a Spielberg movie, is happening in a very short amount of time. Considering that Kiel's book came out in 75 and Barker's yeah. book came out before that, right? There's no shortage of things in these books that I think probably inspired Spielberg to write Close I Encounters. Be I believe so. I think that's, uh, I think that's fair to say, uh, along with uh, J. Allen Hynek. Yeah, and Jacques Vallée, Va Va yeah. Truffaut played Jacques Vallée yeah. in Close Encounters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So all this stuff, Spielberg was consuming this stuff for sure, yeah. which is awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. No, so, no, no, very enjoyable, sure. But yes, we're talking about the home of Newell Partridge, which yeah. was how far away from Point Pleasant? It's about 90 miles, right. Salem is. In and West Virginia. In West Virginia. So you have a fair distance Around the same time, I believe, at night here is some other things going on, other witnesses seeing stuff closer to Point Pleasant. So this thing gets around. Yeah. So it, And it's fast. Yes. And this, <laughs> this is November 14th, 1966, right. which is going to be 12 days after yeah. Woody Durenberger encountered Andrew Cold. 
Partridge had a dog. His family had a dog named Bandit. It was a big, muscular German shepherd. And he, I guess, was going crazy on the porch around 10.30 that night. Around 10.30 p.m., Newell was watching television, and then he said the screen went dark. And then it came back on with an eerie herringbone pattern. And then he heard a loud whining sound from outside that he said was kind of winding up in pitch, like a generator winding up. And I'm not sure if the TV was also making that sound, if it was coming from the television as well as outside. I think it was mostly outside. Mostly outside. Yeah. Well, now the dog is starting to go crazy. He's been taking him hunting, so and he's very territorial. So Bandit, Partridge's dog, began to howl on the front porch. Newell grabs his flashlight and goes outside to see what's going on. So when he got outside, he's looking at the barn about 150 yards from the house, and he shined the flashlight in that direction, and that's when he saw the two red glowing eyes that to him looked like red bicycle reflectors. And he said when he was a kid, he went hunting at night all the time. He knows what animal eye shine looks like. He'd seen every kind of animal you could think of, and he said these things were huge, and being 150 yards away, to have them show up from that distance... There was something very ominous about it. Yeah. No tiny little beady bird eye is going to give you that amount of shine, at least in diameter, from that distance. Bandit, apparently, was not having that fear. <laughs> no, he's... Look, he he's leapt a, off the porch yeah, and yeah. ran towards the hay barn. Right. So he takes off across the yard there, and... Partridge, of course, yells at him to stop, and he's like when a dog sees a squirrel, sees red. Just, literally, this time he's yeah. seeing red. He's not hearing anything. Runs out after him. Now, Partridge goes back inside, and he grabs a shotgun. And he then... This is not a man prone to fear, by the no, way. No, this is a man goes hunting. This yeah. is a man at going At night, out, yeah, in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> up against, with wild animals. Up against wild animals with his trusty shotgun. He goes outside and here's an interesting connection to a previous episode I noticed. Partridge suddenly gets the fear and he is too scared to go outside and so he basically sleeps with the shotgun propped up next to the bed. Yeah, he didn't want to chase Bandit. As much as he loved that dog and he was worried, Yeah, he was so afraid that he did not go after the dog. Another manly man of the rugged outdoors, Terry Sherman, had the same experience on Skinwalker Ranch when the dogs chased the orbs. three blue healers. Exactly. Yeah, and he loved. had this deep, dark feeling like, don't go after them. And a lot of times, you know, with our outdoor dogs that are big and strong, it's like, they'll figure out what they need. Look, they're wild animals. They yeah. figure out what they need to do. If they get in a fight, they know how to get out of it, too. The fight or flight mechanism at some point will tell them what to do. Anyway, he's too scared to check it out. So he, in the morning, realizes that, oh my God, the dog never came back. And he was never to be found again. Yeah, so he gets up the next day and he's like, I've got to go down there. And under the comforting feeling of daylight, he goes down to the barn about where he thought he saw the eyes. And he sees these dog tracks in the mud from Bandit. And he can see the tracks leading down because the ground was wet and it was kind of muddy. And then he sees the tracks right where he thought the eyes were. And they're just running in a circle, which Bandit never did. Just kind of running back and forth in circles. And he can't really figure out what had happened. And there's no tracks leading away. Essentially, Bandit had vanished into thin air. Similar to a Sherman Ranch experience. It is. Yeah. However, with this story and the things we're starting to put together about the Mothman, which clearly, as you've said in the past with Skinwalker and also with our interview with Linda Godfrey and the Dogmen stories, these things need to eat. 
<laughs> well, I mean, for no, all we know, the Mothman <laughs> yeah. grabbed Bandit and took off. Oh, dear. And we're going to find out something that maybe supports that theory here in a minute with the next encounter. Forrest, you like hearing about crimes, frauds, and scandals, right? Are you talking about the upcoming election? <laughs> well, yeah, I am sort of. <laughs> but I'm actually talking about the Great Courses Plus and one of our favorite lecture series there, Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. And I just got done watching the episode Bad Boys of U.S. Politics. Are you sure you're not talking about the election? No, but I am talking about one particular bad boy from our political history, Warren G. Harding. He had extramarital affairs and paid huge sums of hush money to cover them up. He put his inexperienced cronies in high positions who then ended up embezzling large amounts of taxpayer money. He was involved in a corruption scandal with natural resources, and then he finally clocks out in what many people consider a suspicious death. Wow, and people think our current choices are unappealing. Just goes to show you there's nothing new under the sun, but you can always learn about something new with The Great Courses Plus. Exactly. And it's not just about politics, science, and history. You can learn about everything from health, fitness, and nutrition to food, wine, and travel. And these courses go everywhere you do because you can watch them on your tablet, your phone, or your laptop, or you can stream them on your TV at home. And now you can sample as many of these courses as you want with a month-long, unlimited, free trial membership. Well, thanks to learning all about him in this lecture and your endorsement, I know who I'm voting for in November. I'm writing in Warren G. Harding. No, that was not an endorsement <laughs> by anyone. Secondly, he's dead. And third, he's widely considered the worst president in U.S. history. Well, yeah, but at least he has experience. Okay. <laughs> Start your month-long, unlimited, free trial membership now. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. There's a conspiracy afoot, Your voice Scott. is too crazy. What are you no. doing, a car commercial? Come on. There's a conspiracy now afoot. Now back it down further. That's all I can do. <laughs> There's a conspiracy to get you to pay about twice what you should be paying for quality shaving blades. Really? So who is it? The Illuminati? Spectre? The mustache wax cabal? Mustache? What, what is that? Mustache wax cabal? Cabal. 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 Look yeah, it up. I didn't finish it. It's who would want to keep you from shaving? That's the point. Who wants to keep you from oh, using quality blades? I see. Okay. I'm going to say no on the Illuminati. I've met a few of them, and they all seem kind of unkempt. No, I'm talking about the corporations that make personal grooming products and expect you to cough up around 35 bucks for a pack of eight razor blades just because they think you don't have any other choice. But now you do with Harry's.com. Harry's owns their own manufacturing plant in Germany. So not only can they make a high-quality blade, they can cut out the middleman and sell direct to you online for about half the price of your store-bought razor cartridges. And we're talking about a five-bladed cartridge with a smooth friction fighter strip and now a softer flex hinge, just like the ones you're overpaying for in the store. And it's not just the blades that are top-notch. Their line of lotions and creams are high-end spa quality, too. If you're still not convinced, go to harrys.com and check out these razors. You know, we've also had our female listeners tell us they like Harry's because ladies shave too, so it's not just for the gents. In fact, Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, no matter what you're shaving, they'll send you their very popular trial set, which comes with a razor, five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel for free. Get your free trial set when you subscribe to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, you just pay $3 for shipping, plus I have a special offer that's just for you guys. Enter the code LEGENDS 
at checkout and get a post-shave balm for free with your order. I've been a customer for a couple of years now, and I can tell you, really, you do have a choice when it comes to getting quality shave gear at a reasonable price. In fact, I just used them this morning, which is why I sound so darn smooth. Go to harrys.com right now, enter code LEGENDS at checkout, and claim your free trial set plus the post-shave balm. That's harrys.com, code LEGENDS. And now back to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. The very next night, back in Point Pleasant, there were two young couples that had gone out in a car out to one of the spookier parts of town to hang out and probably nick. <laughs> Let's make out point. <laughs> make out point. But, yeah, but it's a, what the locals call the TNT area. Well, and this is an interesting area. And when I stayed there, I wish I'd gone there. I think I was too nervous. And also, we didn't have a lot of time, me and Jerry, when well, I mentioned yeah, the top It's of also the show. very toxic around there. Well, there is a super fun site, <laughs> yeah. but also there's homes. This is yeah. a very large section. And what had happened with the reason it's called the TNT area is because during World War II, they built a plant there to make explosives for the war effort. Munitions and shells. Exactly. But to conceal the plant from the air or from any prying eyes, they built bunkers to store the explosives in, and then the bunkers had earth on top of them. So from Yeah, the, large concrete domes. Everyone knew the area was a bird sanctuary. It had been one for a long time. It had been a wildlife refuge and a bird sanctuary yeah. in this kind of area. So from the air, with these concrete bunkers with grass and plants on top of them, that's pretty much what it looked like. Yeah, and yeah. so it was a concealed operation and therefore theoretically not a target to uh, blow up since it's creating this stuff. After right. the war effort ended, there was still a lot of toxic chemicals there. Like I said, it's a Superfund site for those of you that are not in the United States. A Superfund site is a site that gets earmarked as a particularly bad environmental disaster and it gets access to special emergency funds to mitigate what had happened there environmentally in the past to make right. it safe for nature and people and everyone to continue using. You know, you have to consider during the war, no effort can be spared. So they were making ordinance there. And of course, some of the, those chemicals had leached into the groundwater. So the right. aquifers, basically, you don't want to dig a well there and start drinking copious amounts of water. And some of the bunkers have been leased out to companies who were storing things there. And there was yeah. some company that was storing things there. And as recently as 2010, and we have a link to this in the show notes, one of the bunkers exploded. And, oh, it did? Yeah, and it yeah. exploded bad. Blew Ooh. the doors off. You can look at pictures of it. It's now just a hole. And that's, I think that's part of the design, though, right? The, the heavy concrete reinforcement, not only from bombardment to the air, but maybe in the know, event of an accident. Yeah. yeah. It's also my understanding from Keel's book, there were a lot of homes out there. Now, I don't know if the homes are still there. The, his book is was written you know, 30 years ago. But there were people that lived out that way, too. And when the Mothman sightings started, they had to deal with all kinds of people coming around who didn't have a whole lot else to do. Once this story came out, everybody was like, hey, that's the perfect thing to do tonight. But at this point, that hadn't happened. The story about the Mothman wasn't really out there, even though the night before, Partridge had this weird issue with Bandit disappearing. This is the next night. Word's still not out about that. Word's still not out about all the strange things going on. And these two couples headed out there. They were very young at the time. This was Mr. and Mrs. Roger Scarberry. Linda was her name, I think. And yeah, then, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette. Yes. Yeah. So they were driving in, in the TNT area. And Scarberry's 1957 Chevy. 
Oh, very nice. And they were looking for other people to hang out with, I guess, but the the roads were deserted and nobody was out there. There's houses, but again, it's not very populated. Right. Yeah. And locally, they call the bunkers igloos. And the igloos yeah. have certain numbers. You yeah. know, it's igloo RS3 or whatever, and they're right. sort of mapped out and laid out in different areas now. So they came back there to where there was a gate that was unlocked, and they could pull inside and sort of drive around. You know, it's a classic sort of urban exploration. And it's and, also the, a great scenario for a spooky Halloween story. Right. Well, as they got up next to the actual plant where the explosives used to be made, Linda noticed something. And she told everyone, and they all looked over, and they saw two bright red circles. They were about two inches in diameter and six inches apart. Roger slammed on his brakes. This is from Keel's book. What is it, Mary Millette said. The lights bobbed away from the building, and the startled foursome saw that they were attached some huge animal. It was shaped like a man, but bigger, Roger said. Maybe six and a half or seven feet tall, and it had big wings folded against its back. But it was the eyes that got us, Linda declared. It had two big eyes, like automobile reflectors. They were hypnotic, Roger continued. For a minute, we could only stare at it. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. So they said it was gray in color, and it walked on sturdy man-like legs, and it turned, and I've seen this in a lot of reenactments, a lot of documentaries, <laughs> yeah. but the way this yeah. thing walks and the, with the big wings, it's yeah. scary looking. Like oh, the, sure. Well, <laughs> I mean, I know they're reenactments, but this is a thing that is better off in flight because when it flies, and they talk about it flying, yeah. a lot of times there's not a whole lot of flapping. It's almost like it's effortlessly flying. It has no, the ability to yeah. leap vertically straight up into the air yeah. with very little effort. But well, it doesn't yeah. seem to walk all that great. <laughs> <laughs> it's Whatever not very it graceful on the ground. Here's something that I always found interesting because what they did is they found that faked, hoaxed clip on YouTube of the guy who's got the flying machine that he built and he takes off from the park. Oh, yeah. And it looks pretty real. You yeah. know, we're talking like Brewster McLeod here. Right. Which, Bud Court. Look yeah. it up, folks. But he's flying around and it's something that he made. But what you have to realize is that human beings are too heavy. Birds have like little air pockets, little air bubbles in their bones to make them even lighter. Yeah. Birds don't weigh very much. A sandhill crane weighs at the most nine, 10 pounds, I think. Forrest brings that up because- uh, And that is a big bird and we're going to talk about it very soon here, but that's the closest thing you have to grab to. Well, obviously these legs aren't bird legs. And so what they're describing though, again, it's similar to maybe the five grave diggers. Yeah. Similar to- what the National Guardsmen reported. Everyone's seeing the same thing. Everyone's seeing pretty much the same thing. And, yeah, the only difference yeah. is that you hear sometimes, is, is some people say it's brown, some people say it's gray, which would be an easy color to mistake, especially in the darkness. It's similar enough. Yeah, Partridge is saying that he saw the same red glowing bicycle reflector eyes. Those are big eyes. Yeah, I, mean, I read a fair amount about eye shine, and we're going to talk more about that when we talk about the other incidents and theories and that sort of thing in the other parts for this episode. But the eye shine and red eye shine specifically is something that you see in an animal that is nocturnal and hunts at night. It yeah. has the ability to see in the dark, in some cases a lot better than it sees in the daytime. And Although this creature had been sighted in the daytime, the predatory behavior that it exhibits in most of the sightings occurs after dark. It sounds too big to actually fly. Yeah. So that's an unusual, paranormal, I don't know, supernatural 
aspect of this. Not that I'm saying that it discounts the stories. You could certainly argue that. It seems too heavy, too big to fly with big, muscular, man-like legs. All right, so Steve, I guess, freaked out. He's like, let's get out of here. Roger, who's driving the car, floors it. They shoot out of the gates. They spun out onto the exit road, and I guess they're headed for Route 62. And then they saw it again, or another one just like it, as Keel said. As they hurtled past it, it spread its bat-like wings and took off straight up into the air, according to Keel's book. My God, it's following us, the couple in the back seat cried. Roger swung onto 62 on two wheels. We were doing 100 miles an hour, Roger said, and the bird kept right with us. It wasn't even flapping its wings. I could hear it making a sound, Miss Mallette added. It squeaked like a big mouse. Followed us right to the city limits, Roger went on. Funny thing is, we noticed a dead dog by the side of the road there. A big dog. But when we came back a few minutes later, the dog was gone. So these guys drove to the courthouse and ran into the sheriff's office and told their whole story to Deputy Millard Halstead. Millard says to Keel, quote, I've known these kids all their lives. They'd never been in any trouble, and they were really scared that night. I took them very seriously. So he got in his car. He follows Roger back to the TNT area. They look for the dog's body. This is just a few minutes later. It was gone. So they come back to the power plant. No sign of it. Halstead switched on his police radio, and a very loud signal blasted out of the speaker, drowning out the voice of the police dispatcher in Point Pleasant. It was a loud garble, like a record or a tape recording being played at a very high speed. Deputy Halstead, an experienced cop, looked taken aback but said nothing. He switched the radio off quickly and peered uncomfortably into the darkness, reluctant to really search the old building, but he was convinced. So that's the story. Mary Heyer, who we mentioned earlier, who's a journalist who worked with Q, sent that story out over the wire the next day. Yeah. And that's when it went global. <laughs> but that's when uh, John Keel found it, right? Yes. Yeah. And apparently some anonymous copy editor, they don't even know who it was, named this character after a Batman comic character from the TV series. Yeah. No, and he called him the Mothman. I don't know a whole lot about comics. I admit it. I know we have listeners that do. Because we, have we have listeners little, that do. We have listeners who create comics. Oh, yes, we do. And apparently this guy tagged the creature, the Mothman. In the Batman lore, I could only find Killer Moth. That's actually the official, I believe, print version, official designated So I wonder villain. if on TV maybe they called him Mothman. He, I don't know. He I'm sure we'll have. get some emails. The TV series was, was of course, awesome and well, you silly. Can you do your impression of the Simpsons guy? Which... <laughs> The comic book guy. Wait, worst episode ever. <laughs> now I'm asking for impressions. I used, to, I used to hate them. He does like the ones that I could do really well. Yeah. Or, you know, he, he was actually called Killer Moth. Yeah. That's not comic book store guy. That's upset nerd. Oh, right. Which is like, you know, in episode 37, you said the, this was incorrect. Right. That's how he gets named. Like a lot of things, like Foo Fighters, like Kincaid's Cave, all these things that we mentioned There's uh, a little bit of uh, a misprint in a paper, and Tamam Should becomes Taman Should. Yeah. This happens throughout history, folks, but you know what? Go with it. And the bottom line is, this thing was fast. It flew almost effortlessly. It kept up with this 57 Chevy. If he's got it floored, I believe every bit it could do 100 miles an hour. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were scared to death. The sheriff described them as being frightened. And on its own, this story might be, oh, these kids just got spooked. They saw a barred owl, which is what some people have said. Oh, it was a barred owl. It was a sandhill crane, whatever. But it isn't just this story. It's this story in conjunction with all the other stories happening at the same time. And these are just a few 
uh, just the first of a small number of witnesses that eventually will grow to exceed 100 people. Now, you can easily imagine that these additional people, some of them probably bought into a hysteria and they saw something that really wasn't this thing. But if you take 100 yeah. people, if even 10 of them are seeing something unexplainable, and this was still only just the beginning of a long series of events, many of which we're going to share in the next episode, you're going to hear about more encounters similar to this one and some that are even more bizarre and different again from the movie. The movie kind of only deals with the Mothman encounters, but there was yeah. so much more going on. There were men in black encounters that defy explanation. Indrid Cold showed up again, at which point he shared his first name. Up until this <laughs> yeah. point, he had only said, I'm called Cold. He showed up at Woody's house later, and this time in a black Volkswagen. <laughs> He's breaking with tradition. Yeah, he's breaking yeah. with tradition. He likes bulbous vehicles, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. And then there were more stories of men in black all over the place. And then this thing. Oh, there's strange phenomenon, too. Really yeah. strange stuff starts happening to Keel through this network of people that he knows who he describes as contactees, which is what he refers to anyone who's witnessed a UFO, especially up close. He never goes into. It was Heineck that came up with the classification system, right? Yeah, based on, on the way people reported, it's a way to measure. The intensity, depth of experience of your sighting or of your interaction. Kill's approach to that and to dealing with people who have been eyewitnesses to things is to look more at the psychological impact of their interactions. And that's something that is really particularly interesting. And then when you take all of this and you put it together with the Mothman, there was something going on there too psychologically. Aside from the people like Noel Partridge, who stood on his porch with a shotgun in his hand and was still too afraid to yeah. move out there towards that barn, he had what he described as an eerie sense of fear. There was another feeling that people were having. A lot of people poo-poo this and are, are more than eager to tell us that it's bunkum <laughs> baloney, that there is often a deep down emotional feeling that's tied to the supernatural and experiencing the paranormal. And we personally never have. But we can tell you a lot of people have told us and stories we've come across have, and I believe they're sincere. So again, a feeling is not something we can relay, but that is an interesting aspect that you bring up here because I had remember hearing these accounts and one thing that was reported with these people, not all of them, of course, but a, a good number is that there was a deep down emotional feeling. Now, unlike Mr. Partridge's uh, feeling of fear, there was certainly that, but the other thing that was described Coming from this being, this creature, was a deep-down feeling of despair and sorrow. It's an odd kind of emotion to be feeling from some creature like this, like it was trying to express something, like sympathy, or it was trying to help in some way, but it just did not have the communication tools. And when you look at it, like, well, that sounds kind of weird and silly, that it was sad, but some folks think it had a message for Point Pleasant, a warning that something bad was coming to that sweet little town, a human tragedy of epic proportions that would permanently scar everyone in that community. Well, that's going to wrap it up for part one of The Mothman. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter, Squarespace, The Great Courses Plus, and Harrys.com for sponsoring us. 
We'll be back next week with the next part of the series, when things are going to get even stranger. Thank you to Jordan Pickering, Ray Castaneda, and Sarah Cozumera for lending us their voices. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Thank you.